It was the first time I had to look deep within myself and say, I'm afraid. Mm. I don't want to venture outside of my comfort zone. And it's one thing to be afraid. It's another thing to feel that you can't do it. Mm -hmm. I never felt I couldn't do the job. I just was afraid to do it. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Robin Roberts, welcome to No Limits. Thank you for being so patient. Oh, my gosh. We tried to do this a few times. I would wait forever for Aww. you, Robin. I Seriously, I look up to you. I've looked up to you for many years now. Now Thank that you. I have the opportunity to work with you here at ABC, I have so much respect and admiration for you, for your career, for what you stand for. That means so much, Rebecca. Right back at you tenfold, Thank you. as we Thank say you. down south. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so you're the anchor of the number one morning show, Good Morning America. Say that one more time. Number one. <sighs> Founder of Rock and Robin Productions, you just received the Ooh, highest. Founder, I've never yes. been called the founder of it. Well, I think you're the oh, founder. Oh, well, I did file, but it just sounds so much better. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Founder, go ahead. CEO of oh, Rock and it. Robin Productions, you yeah. just received the highest honor from the Human Rights Campaign. Congratulations! Thank you. Your whole family was there with you they to support were. you. Yeah. Um, and the second season of your fantastic podcast, Everybody's Got Something, just launched. First guest, Gabrielle Sidibay. We know awesome. her from Precious, and she's just a she's just a wonderful woman. How are you enjoying the podcast? I Isn't love it, it. I love it. I love the format. I love when you get to sit down listening to you mm -hmm. interview people, because so much of the time we get to hear you interview people for four or five minutes right. on Good Morning America. But these conversations that you're having with people, you're just getting so much more depth than what we can get in a short TV interview. And it's not just the length of time also, Rebecca, getting away from the studio, getting yes. out of the spotlight. and No just cameras. Like here, no cameras. And you can get a, a real intimate um, look into their lives and you can ask them things that you can't in the format uh, at GMA. Love, hey, love Good Morning America, pays the bills. No, lo <laughs> no. Completely. No, no, no. Love that format, love that show, but it's just a different opportunity to allow people to express themselves and I have a radio background that's where I started WFPR 14 country back in the day at Southeastern Louisiana University so it was like going back home for me and I love it and the first season went so well with people responding and I'm so excited that we're launching the second season I'm so excited too by the way guys you should check this out you can listen to it anywhere where you listen to your podcast um Robin, one thing that really does stand out to me about your podcast, about who you are, this is a career, this is a field that could make you pretty cynical about <laughs> yeah, the world. It could, yeah. And I think that you, at least as, as somebody looking at your choices along the way, you've mm -hmm. made very deliberate choices to look for the best in people, to find those stories that resonate, that, that people can look to as aspirational stories that will make them feel better about the state of the world. And... I wonder what it was, if there was a turning point or if maybe it was your family or your childhood that made you say, this is what's truly important to me and this is what I need to focus on. Um, thank you. You get me, Rebecca. And I think that's why I've always been drawn to, to you personally and professionally. Um, you want to be around people who get you and how you describe me. And it's, it's, it's humbling because I am... I'm the daughter of Lawrence and Lucy Marion Roberts. I don't know how other way to put that, that that's really 
um, being their child, the youngest of four, and, and benefiting from being the baby and having an older brother and two sisters and watching them and learning from them. Uh, my father was a Tuskegee Airman. He was the first, you know, the first military, uh, first uh, flying Air Corps in the military for, for African Americans, and he was there. And to have those role models, my mother uh, was the first in her family to go to college. She went to Howard University on a $100 scholarship. Wow. Um, had lunch with Eleanor Roosevelt while, while she was there on campus and went on to be on uh, these different boards of uh, director and, and different things in down south. And my parents were very appreciative of those who helped them, and they instilled that in us. I remember my mother telling the story of this teacher, an enrichment teacher. What is an enrichment teacher? You know, <laughs> right. you know when, they're, when they're dropping all these programs now in school. Yes. My mother had Wilma Schneg, who was an enrichment teacher, who was there to enrich the lives of these elementary school students. My mother leaves elementary school. She goes off to high school. And Wilma Schneg, just for whatever reason, kept in touch with my mom. Hmm. And when my mother was a senior... She saw her and said, are you going to college? And my mother said, what are you talking about? We don't, Because her mother and father had she dropped out. She hadn't even out. considered it. No, no, because her mom and dad had dropped out in the fifth and sixth grade. And Wilma Schneg helped her fill out the form to get the scholarship to go. So that is why I gravitate toward those stories that inspire people and give people hope. Because I wouldn't be doing what I was, what I'm doing. My parents would not have been able to travel the world um, and, and do the things that they did had they not been helped. And Lord knows we got enough, um, you know, whether it's business, politics, sports, there's these, there are these stories that uh, are, are difficult. Mm-hmm. And so if I can find those, but to be real with them, not, right. not I don't want to be This isn't the candy coated, no. No, sugar exactly. coating and going, oh, isn't this a great right. life? Um, it's, it's real. And I... I enjoy them, and I think that uh, there's a real need now, more so than ever. And you know what? There are a lot of these great stories out there. Yeah. There are a lot of people, everyday people, uh, celebrities, everyday people all around the world who are doing some incredible things, and I just, I just love putting a spotlight, putting the spotlight on them. I can imagine growing up in the Mississippi Gulf Coast, given who your parents are and your siblings, the conversations around the dinner table. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, Wilma Schneck was one of those conversations, <laughs> right. maybe happened a few more times than once. When you were a kid, did you want to be a journalist? Was that your goal? I wanted to be a professional athlete. Which is what you oh, were doing, right? I wanted to more than anything. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I used to I close my eyes right now because I can see myself on the courts in Pascrishan, Mississippi the tennis courts, and I would come off those courts. I mean, it'd be so hot, and I would have strawberries there, and I would eat them like I was at Wimbledon, and I would curtsy. <laughs> I would curtsy like all these things. I mean, that was my biggest dream was to be a professional athlete and tennis uh, in particular, and because I'm rather tall, uh, basketball was put in my hands, and I played basketball, but fortunately, when I was in high school, I realized I was not going to be a professional athlete, that little thing called ability that you have to have. I mean, I had the heart and the desire. I was good. It got me a scholarship. Um, but I wasn't going to be able to play professionally. And that's when I had to decide, oh, guys, you know how everybody says, well, find whatever it is that you love to do and find right. a way to get paid for it. Well, I wanted to do that. And I was told at the time, this is the late 70s, uh, when I wanted to be a sports journalist, I said, that's going to be my way of being a professional athlete. Oh, girls don't do that. Hmm. 
I want him in a wedding band. Girls, you know. And what did you think when you heard that? Uh, I thought, um, I'm sure my father was told that black men don't fly planes, and he did that. So you're going to tell me that because I'm a woman that I can't do sports? And at the time, um, Phyllis George and Jane Kennedy were the only two that I had ever seen on a national level or any level doing sports on television. And they were they, they did really well for what was expected of them. And I have an older sister, Sally Ann, and she was doing television, and she was the one who said, well, just just go for it. Why? What do you mean you can't do that? So I, I look at it as um, when I made it to Wimbledon for ESPN, and the reason I pause is because it's still a very special moment to me. When I made it there, and I didn't have a tennis racket in my hands, but I had a microphone, it was so powerful, Rebecca, because it... It told me, and this was still early on in my career that and life, that your dreams may not quite look like you think they will. That that still, you know, when I was a kid in Mississippi dreaming of being there at Wimbledon and I didn't make it there as a professional athlete, but I did get there that I said, oh, my gosh, you know, you've got to be it helped me be more flexible because being an athlete, you're very goal oriented. Mm-hmm. I had in my for the longest time in my um bedroom in Mississippi, secret to uh, my formula for success. I had misspelled success on this board, (laughs) S-U-C-E-S-S. But I had like, you know, I'm going to do this, 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 that. And I was just very goal-oriented. And that has really helped me a great deal um, in in many areas. But no, I didn't want to. I certainly didn't dream of being the anchor of Good Morning America. That was not anything on my radar at all. I just wanted to be a professional athlete. When that didn't happen, I wanted to be a sports journalist. And when I made it to da-da-da-da-da-da, the worldwide <laughs> leader in sports, I thought that was it. But I had no idea it was just the beginning in many ways. Absolutely. And and by the way, I think you're selling yourself a little short because you played basketball at Southeastern Louisiana. You were the top scorer. You were one of the best ever I did at really, Southeastern, I, I right? Did. I had a thousand plus points and rebounds and all that good stuff. And I was very fortunate to um, receive some accolades. And I'm, I'm in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, but um, as a contributor. Oh, be honest, you know, I'm, I'm there. I'm in the Hall you of Fame. You still got time. I know. I had to pause. I was like, I got to be honest, Robin. It's not as a play as <laughs> as a contributor. Um, but I, I, yes, I was. I I was a good athlete. I did have an opportunity. Uh, my senior year of high school, uh, when I was in college, I knew that there was not going to be a professional. I love the WNBA and the fact that it's been around for as long as it has, and to be a part of ESPN to launch it back in 1997. That's great. When I graduated from college in 1983, there was not a professional league. We had to go to Europe, and I was receiving offers to go to Europe and play basketball. Um, at the same time, I received a part-time offer for $5.50 an hour, 30 hours a week, to be the weekend sports anchor in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I was like, I'm going to take that because I do dream big, focus small. I'm like, am I going to go to Europe and, you know, continue playing? Why? And I have this opportunity, though it's a part-time job, but I knew it could lead to to bigger things. 
And uh, it was fun to when I was working in local markets and they would have these local pickup games, basketball games, and the guys didn't know that I had <laughs> you my back. You show backup. up as a total oh, ringer. Yeah, like... yeah, I did. I would show up and go like, oh, I don't know. They go, like, Let, let's let Robin play. And I looked and, yeah, so it had it had its benefits. Yeah. Did anyone at that time when you were, I mean, you, you, you got the opportunity to go to Europe, you ultimately decided not to. Did anyone at that time think you should have chosen no, Europe no, no, instead? No, 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 no. no. Okay, yeah. so it wasn't one of those decisions where no. a lot of people were saying one thing and you chose the no. alternative. No, no, no. I, I had, you know, my my parents. Um, uh, I, I think of them every day. They 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 are cheering me on from their heavenly balcony every day. And you know, when I walk into the studio at GMA, I blow them a kiss each morning. They were really cool parents. First of all, they were, they did not want to be my best friend. Mm-hmm. They wanted to be my parents. Mm-hmm. And they also, though, um, when I was having these opportunities, and I got more uh, heat and not taking a full-time job in news journalism. I was getting full-time offers in news for um, benefits and a bigger salary, and I got more heat for not taking that and taking the part-time job for five fifty. There are more people who are saying not so much the basketball. They were like, why aren't you taking this full-time position in news? And at the time, I was like, news is a four-letter word. I don't <laughs> want to do news. I want to play sports. I want to be involved in sports. And my parents, and I know it, I know that they also were thinking like, honey, broadcasting is broadcasting. What are you doing here? But they allowed me and helped me financially. You know, there's only, mm-hmm. uh, they, they were still extending, um, giving me, I think it was $75. Uh, I remember my, my first apartment cost $242 in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And because it was, um, it had to be, yeah, it was two hundred forty-two dollars, and that was my entire salary. And so, <laughs> so my so my parents uh, uh, helped me out, and I was there for nine months, and then went on to a, a bigger station. But I really appreciate it that they never um, put pressure on me to you know go to go play ball across uh, the pond uh, to to take the full time job in news. They just wanted all their children to be happy. That is very, very lucky, very blessed, yeah. very lucky. Yeah. So when you're in this role and you, you start bouncing around to different sports positions, different sports anchoring jobs, right. how are you thinking about those moves? And is it in the back of your mind, I, I want to get to ESPN? Is oh, yeah. That, okay, so that's oh, part of it the whole time. It was on the success board. You it have a success on, board. It was, it was on the S-U-C, E-S-S, success. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the misspelled success board. No, I had said I wanted to be in a small market, then a medium-sized market. I had ESPN on that vision board. And so I was in... And, um, Hattiesburg for that 550 job for nine months, then went to a bigger station in Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, then I went to Nashville, Tennessee in 1987, was the Lifestyles reporter. Um, really? I, you know, I was really very, I was really, I, was, I didn't realize, but I was quite a little businesswoman even back then because I knew I needed to get out of that market and get mm-hmm. to somewhere bigger. And um, I remember my parents were doing a lot of traveling for church business. And so they told me they were going to Nashville, Tennessee, and I knew I could stay in their hotel room. So I sent my tapes to the news directors in Nashville and said, I'm going to be in town. Not going to cost you anything. Do you mind if I come by? Didn't ask for a job. Just So to- smart. Yeah. And there was one station, WSMV, the number one station in Nashville, who Alan Griggs, I remember him very well, Alan Griggs, he said, sure. I went by and... He looked at my tape and he said, you know, there's something here. And he created a position. He said, go back. I'm going to work on something. And so he worked out 
uh, and they didn't. He didn't have anything on the books for be a news or sports, but he had something for a lifestyles reporter. So I went there, did so well that the competition sent my tape to get me out of the market because they didn't wow. want this. So they sent my tape. Um, then I got an offer from ESPN in 1988. 1988, they offered me a position, and I turned ESPN down. Why? Um, I'd only been out of school for a few years. I'd only worked in two, three stations, two in Mississippi, the one in Nashville. Had never covered any professional sports. I did not want to be the answer to a trivia question. Mm. I didn't want to be what black woman was hired and fired within a year at ESPN, and that would have been me. I didn't do the work. And I think it's so important to know um, your strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I wanted staying power, Rebecca. I mm-hmm. didn't want to just get there. I wanted yeah. to stay there. Yeah. And so I said, thank you, but no thank you. Kept in touch. Went to Atlanta, GA for two <laughs> glorious years. Uh, v103. Mike Roberts in the morning. Yeah. Mike Roberts was the uh, the news guy, the, the DJ. And I did the sports. How and fun. V103 and did television. And ESPN came calling again, and I knew I had done the work, and I was at ESPN for 15 years. So 1990 15. is the year you make it to ESPN. 1990 is the year I make it to ESPN. So I did have a strategy. I, that was, yes. I was working it. I had, in my mind, again, I had, I dream big, and I still do. I set really humongous big goals but I do those day-to-day things. I focus very small mm-hmm. in reaching that. And that's what I was doing when I was going from Hattiesburg to Biloxi to Nashville to Atlanta to ESPN. And then the beauty of it, Good Morning America, ABC, had no idea. And so it taught me that you can have this game plan. Yeah. But then you also have to be flexible. Then you also mm-hmm. have to be able to... Um, first of all, put yourself in position. Proximity is power. You can wish, hope, and pray all you want, very spiritual, but you have to put yourself in position and being involved with this company and just showing up and just trying to do my very best that other people wanted to to see me do some other things. It's Mm -hmm. commonplace now, but back then, when you were at ESPN, you stayed there. Right. You didn't do, like, you know, people now are all these different networks. Everything's moving. Yeah, and even, like, being able to do a podcast like this. Mm -hmm. Before, I love how we're able to really uh, be able to expand and really show all the different different uh, gifts that we have. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when you're at ESPN, at what point does the ABC opportunity mm. materialize? I was at ESPN in 1990. Um, strictly ESPN, nothing else. That's what, what was that did. moment like, by the way, your oh. very first hit on ESPN? Oh, my gosh. Um, I <laughs> Thank you, because you're, you're bringing me back. I And I, I like to think that I still have that adrenaline and that kind of yes. joy. But, oh, my gosh, especially in the early days. I mean, you see the behemoth that ESPN has become. Back then, we were, like, in trailers and had, like, one little we, – we, there was no makeup and hair. Right. You know, we did it our own set. We did our makeup in the in the bathroom before we go out to the – There was the, also no HD. No, so that's right. That I know, too. really. I know. That, that I didn't mind, that there was no HD. Um but there was just such joy because all of us came from local television where 
sports was looked upon as the unnecessary evil, you know, as, as far as the 30-minute mm-hmm. newscast. Mm-hmm. We would get two or three minutes. And then you go to a place that that's all you did. And that was all. And everyone a, cares about that Everybody thing too. cares about it equally. So it was just, just uh, a joy. And I remember the first time that I did the, because everybody back then started on the overnight, the 2.30 a.m. Eastern time. Sports Center, and it only aired. It didn't re-air in the morning like it does now, but it was only on at two thirty a.m. Eastern Time. <laughs> and my folks down in Mississippi would get up and they would watch it. I love that. And the first time I did a primetime Sports Center, it was a few months after that. Chris Berman, Boomer, the Chris Berman. Um, I did it with him the six o'clock for the first time, and he had been in Hawaii for all those few months that I had started because it was after football he did football his children weren't in school yet and so he after football season he'd stay in Hawaii for a couple of months nice gig right yeah all right <laughs> so he's back it's my first six o'clock he I, I'm, I'm meeting him in essence for the first time but he had been watching me because of the time change he had seen those 230 oh right center. yeah because it wasn't 230 for it him. wasn't 230 for him and so he saw me and he respected me and I'm telling mm. you, Rebecca, I could tell that men, especially who watch and still primarily watch ESPN, they were looking at Chris Berman. They were looking at him like, okay, if she's okay with him, wow, then she's okay with me. Yeah. And I'm so grateful for all the men and women that I worked with at ESPN, especially the guys in those early years who treated me as an equal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, really helped set the foundation. So I had, ju- I was covering, I, I did the original dream team in Barcelona, Barcelona <laughs> in 1992, uh, covered Wimbledon, the U S open uh, final fours. Uh, the list went on and on. And then there was, um, do you remember ABC's Wide World of Sports? Of the course. thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. <laughs> I was the host of, of that for a moment. Um, and that was a big deal for me to still be at ESPN. Mm-hmm. So at one point, I was host, I was an anchor on ESPN Sports Center and the weekend anchor for Wide World of Sports. Little old girl from Mississippi. Wow. And being in the house here at ABC and people watching me do Wide World of Sports, then it was like, oh, you're here. can you do GMA Sunday? Can you do <laughs> yeah. a little a lifestyle or something? Yeah, it turned from a, doing a sports story to a lifestyle story to um, being the news anchor mm-hmm. in 2002. That's when I kind of officially joined the Good Morning America family in 2002. To your point, though, from earlier, proximity is power. Yep. And once you get your foot in that door, that's that's the key. You weren't mm-hmm. necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, I need to work at Good Morning America. It was ESPN was the dream. Right. And yet you never really know. Well, don't you find with all with the number of people that you talk in business that you kind of have an idea of what it is that you want to do or the service that you want to provide and all that. And then things things happen, but you have to, again, that's why I say proxy. You, you have to be at least... In the position, mm-hmm. this is how I looked in, through playing. I learned so much through playing sports. We would play a team that, on paper, should just they they were, they were supposed to kill us. They were just supposed to, and our coach would say, "Just stay close to them. Just you know, keep the score as close as you can because in the end, you never know. You get that that break. If you go into that game thinking, okay, they're gonna they're gonna kill us, and you don't even try." 
when you had those breaks, they weren't going to mean anything because you're so far behind. So just stay in the game. Just stay mm-hmm. in the game and just hope for um, some kind of uh, a break or of some sort. Mm-hmm. And that's how I've always looked at um, my career. It's like I've done a lot of the work, um, but I've got to have some breaks along the way. And if I go ahead and position myself for that... And being here at ABC and doing Wide World of Sports that turned into to GMA and everything uh, uh, else, um, I never really, like I said, I never, I never really thought of, of that. Um, Billie Jean King is a very dear friend. And I remember when I had the opportunity, because when I was still at ESPN, I was, when I started at, at GMA doing the, the news anchor job, in 2002, I was still anchoring at ESPN. I was not going to give up my day job because yeah. I still didn't realize, I didn't know if this was going to work out. And then when I w- was af- offered to be the anchor with Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer, little old Robin Roberts was going to be the third anchor. I remember <laughs> the folks at ABC said, will you now leave ESPN? <laughs> now will you leave us? And I asked Billie Jean King. Hmm. And I thought that she would say, you know, no, no, you know, stay, stay mm-hmm. in sports. And she was like, of course, why would you not? And then Rebecca, it was the first time I had to look deep within myself and say, I'm afraid. Mm. I don't want to venture outside of my comfort zone. And it's one thing to be afraid. It's another thing to feel that you can't do it. Mm-hmm. I never felt I couldn't do the job. I just was afraid to do it. And I'm what were you most afraid of? I was most afraid of people saying or people feeling, why? Charlie, Diane, what? what? Um, I had worked so hard in sports. I had worked so hard to get that position at ESPN and I'd earned that right. Mm-hmm. And I was just so fearful that people would not take me seriously Um and again, why? Why? Why, right. would, why would that matter? If, if uh, because I knew you, that... you spent the time building the journalism career. Exactly. How did that, in in any way, change your behavior, especially early on at GMA? Do, do you feel like you were working harder than you might have if the job had come to you, maybe through a slightly in quotation marks more traditional path? I don't know. I, I I've always been a hard worker. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know if I would have approached it any um any differently um but i know that because of my sports background and being a woman in sports the margin of error was not existent <laughs> uh, and i would often uh laugh with my with my male colleagues because back in the day uh, as a woman in sports you had to as a sports journalist you had to be a former athlete you had to be you couldn't there was you, no other path to right. it right i mean they for credibility you had right. to be but yet, my male counterparts and I would I would laugh at them. I said, "You haven't played since you got cut from Little League. I made it almost to the pros. You got cut in Little League, but yet people think you have more experience, more um, knowledge, or yeah, whatever, yeah, exactly than I do." But you know what? I use that as a positive. Yeah, and I said, "You know what? I am going to be prepared. I am mm-hmm. going to be ready." So um, I I think the nervousness was because it was outside of my comfort zone in that sports. I know cold. Even to this day, I mean, I just know everything about it. I love it. I eat it. I breathe it. And it wasn't that way at the time in news. I had an, uh, you know, 
a, a knowledge of what was going on in the world, but it wasn't a passion of mm-hmm. mine. It was an interest, but not a passion. And so I, I was a little bit insecure in that regard. But more, more than anything else, this is what I love, and it's so important for people to understand. We're all afraid. All of us are afraid. And the courage is to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not that the fear ever leaves. It's just that I'm going to still do it. And that's that's the approach I had to take, that I'm going to do it. And I'm so grateful. I'm so incredibly grateful um, that I did and had no idea of the opportunities that were going to, to be there waiting for me. I think it's such a good lesson. Even if things go wrong, there's always the ability to overcome. Even if there's a mistake, even if there's a failure, you know the more that you fail that you're going to move forward. You know, you know sure. the more that you try that it's not all going to be the end of the world if things don't go exactly the way you were expecting them to. And I loved in the, in the especially the local markets where I worked. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I'm so glad that tape. I mean, like nowadays. Have you ever watched any of those tapes? I I haven't. I haven't gone back and watched any of my like earlier stuff. Anytime recently. How did you get started? Uh, Well, I started. I actually started at CNBC, and I think I've been listening to your story a lot and thinking how similar in some respects your story and my story are because I always wanted to do business use. You know, the really specific industry business stuff. What was it about? Uh, you know, business and what, why you wanted to do really that? That's a really good question. My mom is a journalist and she mm-hmm. covered personal finance and, and really taught me a lot about money and, and things like that growing up and how to save money and how to be frugal and how to, you know, I mean, we, she, she <laughs> taught me how to get by with not a lot, but CNBC was my dream. So when I got to CNBC, it was like, this is the best thing in the world. And when I eventually came over to the network side, it wasn't the thing that I had always dreamt of. CNBC right, right. was the thing I had always dreamt of. ESPN for me, right. And and so it makes sense to me along the way how you had this choice. And you were, most people on the outside looking in would be like, of course you would take the Good Morning America <laughs> job, right? Of course. But uh, it isn't necessarily that simple because it's what, what do you want? And what are what's your goal? And what's your dream? Um, I want to I want to come back to your story because something you said earlier um, struck me. So you were talking about how uh, in sports you played this team that on paper should have beat you. LSU is the team. Yes. LSU. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So on paper, they should have beat you. And uh, for whatever reason, as you were saying that it resonated with me when you got sick. So on mm. paper, getting sick when you were diagnosed with cancer and then later MDS, these are things that can beat you. And on paper, they definitely statistically can beat you. And I wonder how much of that sort of earlier Mm. spirit might have even played into your belief, which at least on the outside looking in, it appeared that you always... You always had that fighting spirit. Oh, wow. You do get me. And and I I mean that, Rebecca. I, I... I approached it much as I did as an athlete, hmm. that um very coachable. My doctors were my coaches, um, set my goals. Um, I get a little weepy when I think about it because um, because it is hard to um, hear the stats. It is hard to, I remember um, Amber, my partner and I, going in to see the doctor for the second go around because uh, 
And because uh, you thought you had made it through uh, yeah, one thought, hump, right? In two thousand and seven, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I know a lot of people who get breast cancer. Oh, okay. Uh, so I had um, I, I had some people I could look to that were successes and and uh, could show me the journey uh, of getting through it. And yes, had chemotherapy, had radiation, all that. So I get through that, feeling good. You know, I, I made it. Um, um, had a, a particularly aggressive form. Uh, it's, it's called um, triple negative, um, meaning mm-hmm. that they don't know how you got it. And so there's no additional treatment after the, the uh, radiation and, and chemotherapy. But by the grace of God, I got through that. And then this uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, which uh, used to be called pre-leukemia. There's nothing pre to it, um, but it is a blood cancer and um, it was brought on by the treatment. The very treatment that saved my life was now putting it in jeopardy. And I remember uh, Amber and I being at the doctor, and it's not really computing with me. What, MDS? I've never, my, what is this? Because breast cancer, I knew what that sure. was. And so he wasn't getting our attention, and he knew I was a, a stat person. So he puts all my information in a computer, and he turns the screen to us, and there is a graph. And there's a one, two, three, four, and there's a dot between one and two. And I said, "What is that dot?" And I said, "What's what he?" And he goes, um, "That is your life expectancy if you don't have a successful bone marrow transplant." I was like, "You've got my between attention. one and, one and two, two. Ye- so yeah, one years. and two years." So that was one and two was the years, oh and gosh. it was right between that. And to be told, you're sitting there, and being told that statistically you might not make it to the second year unless you have a successful treatment and not realizing how difficult it is to find a donor. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, I thought, you know, I have siblings, it's going to be an automatic. Well, that only happens 30% of the time, a blood relative, which means 70% of the time you need someone off the registry. Thank the good Lord, my one sister, one of my sisters, Sally Ann, Sally Ann was a perfect match and, and um, it, it, it went well, but, I, every, how I approached it uh, was very much like it was the opponent. It was LSU, mm. if you will. I love LSU. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> ragging on LSU. <laughs> I'm not ragging on LSU. Uh, lying up though, Southeastern, lying up. <laughs> uh, so I looked at it as my opponent. Um, my doctors and nurses, they were the coaching staff. Mm-hmm. And um, I just... It was as much mental as it was physical. I mean, it was physically grueling, but it was much mental as it was physical. And I thought about, Robin, you know, people said you, you should not be a sports journalist. People said, you know, you all these things, these all these no's that you heard, but you never believed it. Your family never believed it. So you're not going to let some computer tell you that you're not supposed to be here in two years. And so I just faced it the same way that I faced everything in, in my life. And I think it really... Because in, <laughs> I am the daughter, as I said, of Lawrence and Lucy Marion Roberts. I wish you could have met my parents, Rebecca. I, I would have re- loved to meet them. They were, I mean, they, they, uh, that little family model, we, you know, we don't have it all together, but together we have it all. And that was it. They didn't get everything right. But just how you talk about your mom, um, my mother and father, I, I remember when I, whenever I would want something, I remember... Uh, going back to elementary school, you're much too too young, too young to remember the <laughs> the uh, uh, banana seat stingray. It was uh, a, it was a particular bicycle that. Oh everyone, sure, okay, I know uh, what you're talking about. Okay. You saw it on Seinfeld. That's yeah, why. You know, sure. Remember, <laughs> yeah. I remember um, 
that that was the bike everybody had to have. I was in the third grade. So my parents, they gave me the bike. So I had it, and I didn't really take care of it, and it stayed out in the rain. And the next year, you had to get a 10-speed. English ratio is what we call it. Mm-hmm. You had to have a 10-speed next year. So I go to my parents and said, okay, you know, I'm still a good kid. Uh, I want the 10-speed. They're like, no. You're going to raise money, and you're going to earn it, and you're going to buy it yourself. Because we gave it to you, mm-hmm. and look what you did to the other one. I was like, oh, it took me two and a half years $97.52, go down to Swin Dealer on Pass Road in Gulfport, and I plucked down that money, got that 10-speed, and had it through junior high, high school, college, and I didn't even realize that they taught me, like, when you have to earn it, yeah, you're going to treasure it and treat it so much better than if something is given to you. And so they always were giving us these these life lessons that have really, really set a very strong foundation for all their children. Wow. They sound like incredible human cool. beings. They They're sound cool. really, really cool. Your sister obviously is pretty cool, too. Yeah, she saved my life. Okay. <laughs> and I remember, I know, I know my brother and my sister, Dorothy, they're like, oh, gosh, do we have, how many times do we have to hear a right. Italian save your life? But yeah, she did. When you look back, what, what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the toughest lesson I had to learn that God's delays are not his denials. I would always feel like I I always wanted something and I didn't get it. And I had to realize that there was something that better, not even necessarily better, but something that was more destined for mm, me. Mm-hmm. And that's hard because I don't know about you, but there are many times... Oh, gosh, you know, uh, whether it's a position or you whatever. You work so hard yes, for it. right. And you're like, you earn it, and you, didn't, you, you don't get it. And yeah. You just, uh, I hated that feeling. Um, and so the hardest lesson was to learn to let go. When did Ooh. you learn that? Ooh, it took, it took some time. It took, um, I would say, when I was at ESPN and um, having... It was hard to let go of ESPN. Mm. It was really hard. Uh, to this day, especially men, they're in the studio, you with us at GMA, you know, and we had that live studio audience, right. and they're great, and we're taking pictures during commercial breaks and, and that. And uh, every now and again, a guy would whisper in my ear, why'd you leave? <laughs> Why you, you're like, what, 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 what were you thinking? Like, not, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're glad that I'm doing sure. what I'm doing. Um, and it was really hard to, to, to let go and to, to know that there was something, uh, to believe mm-hmm. that there was something um, more for me. But I was really, uh, it makes me think of the song that I, I um, wrote with India Ari. You know, life is a journey, not a destination. Mm. There are no mistakes. This chances we've taken lay down our regrets because all we have is now. I had to learn that. I had so many times that uh, even now when I get down about something, and Amber, sweet Amber, will say, didn't you just speak to like a thousand people? And <laughs> oh would, would, would you please listen to your own speech? You know, why are you so? Yes. Yeah. And I'm, you, you, you're, I'm laughing because my husband and I have these conversations <laughs> all the time. And, and he'll say to me, you know, you, you just had like the best week ever. Right. And now you're focusing on this one thing that didn't work out the way that you wanted I it know, to. I know, I know, um, I know. But that's, that is good advice. And I think that the reason I like it coming from you is because most people look at Robin Roberts, mm-hmm. the Good Morning America anchor, 
former top-of-the-line ESPN anchor, mm. uh, inducted into the Women's <laughs> Hall of Fame, um, the Walter Cronkite Award yeah, winner. That a lot. Yeah, uh, thank you. You, you, you've done it all. You, you best-selling author, podcaster. You've done it all. And it's hard to see on the outside looking in, I think. The fact of the matter is it's not this seamless upward trajectory of a path. Well, that's what's so important. That's why I love my podcast so much as well, because I want people to know. Because I think, there, I don't know why some people feel that when they look at someone that has reached a level of success, whatever mm-hmm. that is, that the road has been easy, that they're right. never fearful and all that. And I, I I just want to pull back the curtain on the podcast. No, oh, that's not the truth. Yeah. That's not the case. Yeah. You know, and, and Gabby, uh, Gabby Ray Sibide said something very interesting in the podcast. She was as she was as fearful of succeeding as she was in failing. Mm. I was like, "Whoa!" Because you know, Precious came out. I mean, they they put Precious together in the movie that she yep. became nominated, but it took a long time before it actually got on the screen. So you, it's so she knows this movie is going to come out, and everybody's saying it's going to change her life. But in the meantime, she's still trying to make ends meet. Um, she is fearful of, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen if it is a success? success? Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. going to happen to me? And I never thought about being fearful of of success as much as, as failure. So I love telling my story and showing people others' stories about how we are all – fear just takes the eye of a needle to get through, and it just permeates and takes over everything and can be paralyzing. And I am a firm believer that um, to tell people um, that everyone feels this fear and just don't let it don't let it win. Mm-hmm. Just don't let it win. I, I, I don't like I don't like to lose. <laughs> I don't like to lose. And I'm not going to let it. Uh, and that's one thing you can actually control. At can. least I mean, as hard as it is. Are there any? Is there anything outside of talking to Amber, who sounds like an incredible partner? Who, She's all who right. Helps, no, who don't, makes don't it? make my life even more miserable. <laughs> She'll hear that. And... But but is there anything? Do you have any um, practices that help you when you feel the fear creeping meditation. in? Meditation. Meditation. Yeah, meditation has helped. I started uh, a little over a year ago, and that has been uh, be- very beneficial. I actually get up earlier in the morning. I already have to get up early. I get up at 3.15 a.m. At 3.30, I do a half-hour meditation from 3.30 to 4. I try and get in a second one, um, and Dan Harris can go on and on and talk. Well, and you and did. It, I, mean, I loved you on his podcast oh, wow. talking on 10% Happier about this, too. It was just – it's really been beneficial. It has um, – it's 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 so odd because it calms you and energizes you at the same time. And um, I have found that that has been um, so incredibly beneficial. But my faith, I really mm-hmm. have to say, I just I have one of those um, even when I was going through those darkest hours and 2012 was a horrendous year for me. That's when I was diagnosed with MDS. My mother, I you know, almost dies in my arms a week before I'm supposed to have this procedure. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just like I just I want to I just want to leave. Um, it was just a, this this horrible horrible year. And I remember people often asking me because they know I'm very spiritual. They're like, "Well, you know, what did was your faith shaken?" And I'm like, "Yeah, um, but you know what? Um, God can take it." I was mad at him 
But you know what? He can take it. I'm not going to. I'm not going to lie and say uh, I, I. I wasn't upset and I wasn't pounding my fist and saying not so much why me, but why? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And I am so incredibly grateful that I have this bedrock of faith. This just. It's just so um, real. Um, I saw this with a dear friend. Um, part of the reason I, I don't want to get into great detail, but one of the reasons we had to uh, reschedule. Um, mm, talking with yes. you, I had to talk at a service uh, for a friend who lost a child in the most unimaginable way. Yes. And I was watching my friend and just this, <laughs> I mean, her child was taken from her. And to be in this church and to hear the pastor and to see my friend and to see her get up there and speak. And so I know faith is real. And it doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It doesn't mean that we're not scared. But at the end of the day, my faith, and I've said this over and over again, when fear knocks, let faith answer the door. And that, that has gotten me through to be where I am right now. And I am so grateful that my parents, uh, again, it always goes back to my parents, that they instilled that in me. Well, my I, my next question was was too light for oh come on for that, for that. no I'm gonna no. I will come to it it'll be the but final see, question see that see that's that's the beauty of me you can be like remember when I you, love that when you did what was this the other uh, you were doing uh, the morning wake up <laughs> call and you were light and yeah. heavy and I couldn't do this all deep stuff so it's all I good. love it it's no all it's good. all good it's, it's all good, good. Um, so my I, I've got two questions left if if there's anything in terms of your dreams that comes next for you ooh are you thinking about anything else that's really big am i thinking about anything that's really big i am very excited about um this new medium i'm Mm -hmm. i'm I'm excited about you know when people keep saying that the television is a dinosaur you know uh the cord cutters and i I, a lot of my nieces and nephews are cord (laughs) or are cord cutters um i'm excited i have I have recently, um, I look at uncertainty as endless possibilities. Mm, you know I like what? that. You know, yeah, I do. Yeah, totally. I, and you know, these are uncertain. Clever and creative people can do a lot with uncertainty. Yes. And you know, as a business person. Yes. That's what, you want to make a killing in the stock market? Yeah. <laughs> I know, even though you always tell me, I love this when you say, you know, the stock market hates uncertainty. Right. And that's when, you know, I do listen but, to you. But I, I appreciate uh, yeah. that. And Warren Buffett always says, when everyone else is running for the exits, that's when you go I, in. That's it. That's it. So that's how I, um, so I'm excited about the different kind of um, opportunities that could be there. I don't know. All right. Um, Last question. Great. I ask everybody. This has been a very positive, optimistic interview, but I am curious about the worst advice you've received because I also think people get a lot of bad advice, sometimes from very well-intentioned people, and I wonder what the worst advice you've received along the way has been. Let me think about that because that's a good, good, the worst advice that I have ever uh, received, the worst advice. Da, 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 da. I was thinking about Southeastern. I was supposed to transfer to Tulane, but I'm glad I stayed at Southeastern. So that one, that one, I know. Um, gosh, what do people normally say when you ask so, them that? So it's interesting. Wow, um, that's I like that. A lot question. of the time, a lot of the time, it's 
people who are trying to protect you from taking risks. So, you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs Uh and a lot of women have been told by family, by loved ones, don't leave the cushy job. Instead, stick to the company job where you've got the pension or the 401k and the health insurance and don't go out and start the company that you want to start on your own. Sometimes I get a little, um, I I remember I was, I was speaking somewhere and, um, the person came up to me um, and they said something along the lines of, you got to have something a little different. I mean, these are, these kids have gone through a lot. And, and, and so if you could, you know, can't be all that good. And, and I listened to them and I said, I'm not going to apologize for having a good upbringing. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, 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 that doesn't guarantee anything. And it wasn't all roses, but um, no, I'm not. No, mm-hmm. I had a good upbringing. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I made mistakes, and my parents, I got spankings and, and things <laughs> like that. Um, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna apologize for that. And and I think that helped me all, all, all along the way. In that, I've always been able to, in the most dire circumstances, find something. Um, and I ha- and I do believe that people are well intentioned. And so I think why I kind of, you know, about that. Anybody who gave me bad advice. I have a really good kind of, you know, instinct and I probably don't remember because it just went in one in one ear and out the other. Yep. But yeah. even that even the the piece of advice that you were given before that speech, this kind of idea like don't be entirely true to yourself, Robin. Yeah. Just make it make it a little spicier. I think that personally listening to yeah. it, you didn't dub it that's true. Bad advice. But I think that was not – I hear this a lot. People who are pushed in this direction to do something outside of themselves, to be inauthentic, that's bad advice. That is bad. So I did get bad advice. You did it, Robin. Oh, okay, good, good. <laughs> thank you, Rebecca. Um, thank you. This was – I'm seriously blown away by this conversation. I am so grateful and honored that you would spend time with us here on No Limits. And I love your new podcast. Again, it's Robin Roberts Everybody's got something. something. You can find it here where you're listening to this podcast. And Robin, people can find you. I, I'm sure everybody who's listening is already following you all over social media, but it's at Robin Roberts everywhere. Right. That's right. Because there's no limits when it comes to Robin Roberts. No <laughs> limits. No limits. Oh, oh that's Rebecca oh, Jones. Yeah. <laughs> See that? Limitless, baby. Thanks, Robin. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very excited about this. It is our first international No Limits entrepreneur. Carol Barrett comes to us from Brampton, Ontario, and is the founder of Fluency365, an online platform that helps you to learn a foreign language by practicing virtually with animated characters. Such a smart idea. Carol came up with the idea when she couldn't find anyone to practice Japanese with and wanted to eliminate that as an excuse for not learning. Fluency 365, like the name would suggest, offers 365 interactive conversation sessions and 365 video lessons to ensure you're understanding each conversation every day of the year. Carol, thanks for sharing your story and for being a part of the No Limits community, which I guess now extends to Canada. That's awesome. Remember, you can send me your nominations here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. 
Taylor Dunn, Michelle Bancardo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.